the big enemy is cynicism and nihilism, right? And when you only criticize, you only tear down and you don't replace, what are you what are people left with, right? CEO and co-founder. My friend Ryan Holiday is followed by millions of people around the world. His first book was on media manipulation, and he's taken some of that insights about how media plays on people's fears and uses it for negative things, and he's turned it around. He's now using it for positive things. He's teaching people ancient wisdom, talking about virtue talking about trying to understand why these values that have been around for thousands of years are relevant to our own lives today and can make us stronger and better in our own lives. Really excited to share some of Ryan's wisdom with you guys today. Really excited to have my friend Ryan Holiday here with us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Ryan, you were a 19-year-old college dropout. Today, you're a best-selling author with millions of followers. Take us a little bit along your journey. Yeah, I... I um Growing up, I don't think I met anyone that didn't have... A, like, none of my parents' friends were entrepreneurs in any way. Everyone had a job. I grew up in Sacramento, a government town, you know? So, so the idea that like you could do like a creative thing, you could run your own, but that was like kind of inconceivable to me. So it wasn't until I went to college and I met actually weirdly college professors were the first people I met that were like writers that did, you Mm -hmm. know, that had done like this person had published a book. So none of that was really like, um, comprehensible to me till later. And then, uh, I, yeah, I left when I was 20 to be an assistant for a, a writer named Robert Greene, who wrote 48 Laws of Power. So I, I basically, I realized I wanted to be a writer. And then, uh, the idea that you would learn the best place to learn about that was in school fell short for me. So I, I went and I learned like the craft of writing books from what I think is one of the great writers of our time. So that it was, it was a, a journey that was sort of long underground and then it accelerated very, very quickly when I, when I left for college. So earlier in your career, you worked for Robert Greene. You worked yeah. a little bit on like marketing, media manipulation was a topic you were really interested in early on. Where did that come about? Yeah, I wrote a book about fake news in 2011, which was probably a bit uh, ahead of its time. Uh, <laughs> um, I was talking about how, you know, seeing this, like how stuff would sort of originate on the internet and then sort of spread into culture. I, w- I saw how that happened, you know, working for authors or I, I was director of marketing of this apparel company called American Apparel. And so I was like, this is not how things should be. So I wrote, I wrote this book sort of about how that worked. And I thought it would be this kind of like precaution or cautionary tale sort of tell people. And most people in the media were like, basically I was, they sort of shot the messenger. The book was really controversial when it came out. Unfortunately, almost all of it has held up mm-hmm. and uh, things are, are, are arguably much worse than they were then. But, um, so rather than being cautionary tale, there's angry at you for revealing it or for yeah. saying things work that way. Yeah. I, I, um, and, and also like th- what's interesting about the media is the media is the, the fourth estate, Right. But then it goes to the, you know, the famous juvenile quote, who, who watches the watchman, right? The media loves to hold other industries, other people, other parts of American culture or life. They get really, accountable. Ang- they get really angry when you come after them. Yeah. And they, and they don't like to change what they, they, they are never part of the problem, right? In their view. And so uh, a lot of the things that I was talking about in that book are now part of the sort of like cyber warfare playbook or the media manipulation playbook. And, um, had, had, I think the media been more willing to look itself in the mirror and go, 
you know, like, look, there's no one the media dislikes more than Trump. And there is no one who has gotten more free publicity from said media <laughs> of course. Uh, than Trump. Right. And so there is this symbiotic relationship. There's something the, unhealthy going on with, with their fascination with broken things. Yes. And, and I think that's true at large, right? Like, uh, Everyone is aghast when there is a mass shooting, right? Everyone is horrified. It's but the but, but, worst but, thing that's happening. And yet it nothing gets more coverage than that. They feed it. I know I, I mean even for myself, I think I checked I have thirty five hundred tweets as, as of the time yeah. we're recording this. And I think there's been like three of them that were controversial. Then the media like wrote all the stories about those and nothing else nothing else. Even though there's lots of I think inspiring and cool stuff we talk about and do. Yeah, yeah. It's a it's it's clearly a broken system. And and there was this quote that I read when I was writing the book. Um, it was what what's so fascinating too is you go back a hundred years, two hundred years, and the same criticisms of the media then, you just swap out technology or different words is a true then or true now. But he, he was basically saying that, look, uh, America is a comp- is a country governed by public opinion. So what governs public opinion governs a country. And so these algorithms, the, the, the mediums that we use, social medium, social media, all the, the things that make up the monolith that is the media essentially determine how the system works, how we perceive the system, how we perceive ourselves. And so I think we do a bad job, one, fixing it, but two, just understanding how that sausage gets made. So having watched your path, I kind of feel like you came to really understand this kind of dirty, gross system with bad incentives and making us, if I want to get noticed, I got to say something really edgy, you know, yeah. all over the line. And you've kind of taken that and you, and you've gone towards, towards philosophy of life, stoicism, you've gone towards studying virtue and studying our civilization. Is this like, is this a personal journey as well? You're like, how do I, do I have a positive like, way to confront this like really crazy thing? Well, it's funny is like some people said that I, like I wrote, trust me, I'm lying to get rich or whatever. And I was like, if I wanted to get rich, the last thing I would do is tell people how this stuff works. Like I would, I could make a lot of money using it. Right. And so for me, it was like realizing that I'd always wanted to be a writer. That was a unique set of experiences and a perspective that I had. And that was my, that was what my first book was. But the idea was always to be a writer. So there was part of me that as I wrote that book was sort of a, like burning the boats behind me, wanting to go in a different direction. Mm -hmm. But then, yeah, I I do think we struggle, which is also partly why I wrote that first book, which is like the worst people in our society are the most adept at exploiting and using the media and, or, or, or viral ideas. And what we have, what people who have positive messages or, real perspectives or lessons uh, to teach people have to do much a much better job of figuring out these tools and using them to to reach people and, and I love you're talking about classical virtue yeah. and you're figuring out how to get it to millions of people this seems this is like a really useful thing for society it's not very popular like why aren't more people doing it is it, is it really hard well, it's, it's extremely hard. Like, okay. So imagine, so I wrote this, I wrote this book. It's a marketing book. It's controversial. gets all this attention. There's obviously ways to monetize that after. And then I went to my publisher for my second book and I was like, I want to write about an obscure school of ancient philosophy. They, <laughs> they did not back up the Brinks truck. You know, they, they gave me, I think less than half what I'd gotten for my first book, for my, wow. for my second book about, uh, uh, what, what became my second book, which is about Stoic philosophy. So, which was that the daily Stoic? That was, like, uh, that was the obstacle is the way. The obstacle is um, the way. That's right. You know, which is, you know, sold a million and a half, two million, you know, on the verge of two million copies. Um, nobody thought, and even I didn't think that. Like, I, I thought, hey, these ideas have clearly worked and helped people for 2000 years. There's something timeless about them. But like the work of that was, 
like most people don't wake up and think like, you know what I need? Philosophy. I need ancient philosophy, right? Like it's, it doesn't, you know, a bunch of old dead white guys does not exactly scream like modern solutions to modern problems. And so how do you take something that seems antiquated and make it timely and accessible and practical? That's been, that that's where all the marketing stuff came in in a lot of ways. And, and so, so you're taking some of the marketing, applying it to the wisdom and putting it forward in a way. Yeah. But also I think too much of philosophy exists in this vacuum of like, abstraction or theory or, you know, interesting debates, but like most people wake up every day and have problems, right? Like they have a drinking problem or an anger problem, or they're, you know, they have imposter syndrome or, you know, first first two are more bigger deals for me, but no, but we all, (laughs) we all have like, we all have problems and it doesn't occur to us for some reason that 2000, 3000, 4,000 years ago, people had the same problems, right? And that the smartest people in the world then were thinking about those, those things. You know what I mean? Like they, they were thinking about how to deal with that. And that's what I love. Like when you pick up Marcus Rios's meditations, like here he is talking, he opens meditations with essentially a rant about all the annoying, obnoxious people that he's guaranteed to meet <laughs> in the course of the day. And, but he, but obviously he takes this philosophical lesson in it, which is like, look, if you expect differently, you're going to be disappointed. Uh, well, and- he, well, he takes that to a real extreme too, which is interesting. Right. I, mean, I remember, I remember the quote, if you, you know, if you kiss, you kiss your yes. daughter, good night, like you know, imagine she'll be dead in the morning, which is you know, I have four young girls. That's, that's really intense, but, he, but there's like, he's taking this to a real extreme of how to think well, about it. it. It is the most probably haunting lesson in meditations. Yeah, I, I have a memento mori ring on right now, actually, it was just this, the, the one thing we all have in common, the one certainty in life is that we'll die. And that is the one thing that nobody wants to think about or talk about. And so the, the Stoics obviously try to meditate on death, death giving you clarity, giving you perspective, giving you urgency. But I think the penultimate sort of most challenging way to do that is yeah, thinking about the mortality of the people that you love most you love in the, the world. Most. And so, yeah, he's, he says, he's quoting Epictetus. He says, as you tuck your child in tonight, say to yourself, like, they may not make it into the morning. I don't think he's, I don't think that's about detachment. I think what he is doing is actually the opposite. He's saying, like, why are you rushing through this? Like, why are you assuming you get to do this tomorrow? Right. And so when I say that briefly to myself, right, catch myself, like, I'm like, you're thinking about the present, basically. Yeah. I'm going, why am I rushing through bedtime? Like, I get to do bedtime now. I will be heartbroken someday when I don't get to do this. So why am I going to rush through one so I can check email or that's very, no, it's very healthy. That is a special time you have and it brings you to that present that you might not get to do it again. And and he knew this from experience. I mean, Marcus loses five children before adulthood. And so, so I think one, it's, it's a testament to the, 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 the reality, the fragility of the human experience and the, the need not to take people for granted. I also think it's a testament to the power of stoicism. I mean, like, how does this guy even get out of bed in the morning? Like so, just imagine that happens to you. Like how how do you carry on? Well, so what? What it, back up a bit. What is the Stoic code? Like like what what what's the framework they're using? Well, so Stoicism is built actually around the same cardinal virtues as Christianity: courage, self discipline, justice, and wisdom. And the idea was that we don't control what happens to us in life, but we can always respond to what happens to us in life with those virtues. 
And what I like about Stoicism also, uh, the distinction in the ancient world, uh, the two rival schools are Epicureanism and Stoicism. And Seneca, one of the great Stoics, is saying like, an Epicurean will get involved in public life if they have to. And and uh, he says, a Stoic gets involved in public life unless something prevents them. Interesting. And so I like the idea of, I mean, the Stoics were emperors and soldiers and, uh, you know, entrepreneurs and public intellectuals, they were in, they did not retreat into the garden or the monastery. It was their duty to have courage to be out there in, in, in life. To be, to be a positive difference maker in, in the world, in whatever role fortune assigned to you. Like Marcus doesn't want that. I think what's fascinating about Marcus Aurelius too, is like, he, he's not, he didn't want to be emperor, nor was did he inherit the throne? Like his father was not emperor. He's seen as this talented young man and he's adopted. It's like the, the falls on him. Right. And he could have said, I don't want this. This is my job. He could have, you know, neglected the duties, but he goes like, this is the role that life chose for me. I'm going to step up and sort of meet that destiny. So is the role that life's chosen for you is, is, is it seems like to educate people on a lot of these things and, and to do it through whatever platforms necessary to, to, to reach them and, and to teach them. Is that, is, is that what you're doing? I think so. I think, I think the job of a writer is to have something to say. And I think what I have to say is taking at, what, what I'm good at saying is translating ancient ideas into a modern context. Like what I do is take the ideas of the Stoics and, and different philosophical schools and I think I do a good job illustrating them through stories and examples and connections that make people who ordinarily would not, not only would they not be reading books about ancient philosophy, but I hear from lots of people who like, they, they don't read books, yeah. but like, you know, they're, they're an NFL player and their head coach gave them a copy or, you know, they were in prison and like a family member gave like people who are wow. not readers who are therefore not accessing these ideas that are, you know, tried and true. These, and, these are key ideas. People live their lives. So and have yeah. for yeah. All, like, we are a product of people living. I, by I, these I, ideas. I have your late, one of your latest ones. You're doing a series on the four virtues. The yeah. one, this is discipline is destiny. I guess that's a virtue of temperance, but yeah. it ties into everything else, which I've actually bought a bunch of copies for people who work. With oh, me. So I think it's, I think it's a very inspiring framework to remind us about, you know, just, just to keep striving and, and keep staying disciplined and which is, which is hard to do without like reminding yourself of like the virtues and the framework and why you care about it sometimes. Yeah. Although if you, if you're thinking about like, how do you like making an unsexy thing, sexy, like temperance does not exactly. No, exactly. Exactly. The least, sexy, like the least sexy <laughs> thing. I'm like, well, I like drinking and having fun. So, yeah. but, it, but it actually, it actually is pretty exciting if you think about the the right way and what, what it means for who you are and what you can do. I think that's what I, what I like to do is like, so some, some thing that people need to know and what is a context by which, um, you can make it interesting to them. So like, um, in 2015, I sold this book. I was going to write a book about humility. That's what I was interested in. And then I was like, no one will read a book about humility. That's pretty hard. Seem- That's pretty hard. So it, it pivoted and became a book against ego, right? So so my book, Ego is the Enemy, is, is, is thinking about even people's ego. Like people don't, yeah. humility is not aspirational or exciting or compelling, although it's critical and humility is at the root of uh, a lack of humility is at the the root of so many failures, and you're also and, identifying an enemy that's holding you back that you, yes. can, that you can now fight, and that's that's kind of more of the right energy. Yeah, and so on discipline to be like, okay, temperance not interesting, discipline, self discipline being 
you know, at least something that people think they need. And, and I think that's, you know, like, um, there's that, there's that Emerson quote where he says, you know, if you build a better mousetrap, the the world will beat a path to your door. That's not how life works. Yeah. Like you have to, you have to create a compelling reason for people to be interested. You have to think about what their, their resistances, their objections, their preconceived notions. And you have to find a way to make that thing attractive or interesting to them. Politicians are of course horrible at this. They're, they seem to be very bad at very bad at this in general. I mean, I mean, t- talk a little bit about that. What's happening in our society. I mean, you go back, I was reading a book from 1950 the other day that was very inspiring thing. And exactly pretty Botanica has this old, yeah. like great conversation, wisdom books and stuff. And, uh, and they're like lamenting the fact that everything's falling apart yeah. and no one knows about these conversations anymore. And we're not teaching yeah. our society, all of our history. And it, it feels like there's a lot of times when everyone like old persons, all they gripe about yeah. this, but this, the same time, like, are we in a somewhat unique time where these virtues are even less than usual present and how we're teaching our young people? It, 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 it does feel like it does feel like like at least you'd always talk about courage, for example, to young men like 100 years ago. Yeah. Like you go back and read the books you gave young men 100 years ago and it's all about some of these virtues. And I, and I feel like it is missing right now from our society. No, I, I, I definitely think that's true. I mean, like I think about the books that like you know, you read your young kids, it's like about pizza and monkeys and what, you know, and then you can, they're fun and it's nothing is better than watching your kids giggle and laugh at whatever. Um, the only thing they might teach is about the environment sometimes, but there's like never anything about self-sacrifice. Yeah. Like, and I contrast that with say like Aesop's fables, right? Which is each one of these funny, whimsical, weird stories is designed to teach a profound moral lesson or, you know, fact of the universe. Well, also there's like intense things where like there's kids dying. There's like people like, it's like all sorts of like terrible things, but I feel like kind of like with Marcus Aurelius, like, like realizing that the world is a more serious place and stuff yeah. does matter. Like I feel like we protect a lot of our kids from that. Like we're, like we're sheltering them into this kind of more fun, happy playground versus what we used to do with it's, stories. It's weird. People will be like, okay, I like an adult will read my book and they'll be like, how do I, like, I have a 17 year old. How can I introduce them to the Stoics or something? Mm-hmm. And I go like, first off, I think my books are, are pretty accessible, but I go like, a 17-year-old is more than capable of reading a philosophical text or reading totally. Plutarch or any of these. Like, we baby our kids when it comes to books yeah. um, as if, like, for literally thousands of years, people, you know, your kid, your 17-year-old a thousand years ago would have memorized most of the Odyssey or something like that, right? Like, we, I think we sometimes baby our kids and then we wonder why they don't have these like old fashioned values or virtues. It's like the means by which society has been communicating these timeless ideas. Of course, it's by example, but it's also by narrative and myth. And the art that you have, have up in your house, the stories you tell them, the movies you watch, you know, the, the, the people you support or don't, how, how you talk about these things. This is how we sort of inculcate these virtues. And like, we, I think we're looking at a society that is the product of that, a slow collapse of the ability to do that. Like we wonder why politicians break through norms. Well, was that politician taught? what those norms were, where they came from, why they matter, you know, like, uh, there's a great book by Tom Ricks who actually lives in Austin called the uh, first principles. Mm-hmm. And he was looking at like the founders and what books they were reading when they founded America. And they were deeply steeped in, uh, yeah. like Greek and Roman stories, right? Like the, the, the most popular play in, uh, 
18th century America was a play called Cato by Joseph Addison about the Stoic. And Washington models his entire life on two things, Cato and Cincinnatus, right? And like how many, like my kids know who those two people are, um, but like how many... 30-year-olds, let alone 10-year-olds, we don't teach know any of those I was just names. reading Cato's letters, which were written in the 1720s, like we're referencing Cato yeah. about a bunch of these topics that influenced the founders. And, yes. and I was frustrated I'd never been told or taught about them because they clearly were a lot of the ideas that kind of fed into the Declaration two generations later. But it, it is, I mean, we're just not given this history anymore. Well, even like, even some of the famous lines, like, give me liberty or give me death. I regret I have but one life to lose for my country. Those are lines from the play. That would be like, if you were up for execution, you quoted the God father or something yeah. right like like if you hadn't seen the movie that would go no, over no your head. Get it, yeah. but like they knew these things when when washington you know uh walks away resigns his commission and heads back to his farm people saw that as not only great but they saw that as a deliberate nod to the story or the myth of cincinnati so in the city of cincinnati in honor of washington well and there was a thing called like the society of the cincinnati like all these things even you said the cato's letters like when the founders would write a letter and pick a pseudonym yeah. they would go cato or sister they would pick these people names knew people knew who these things were and like i think we're losing the familiarity of them i, I would I, I didn't take Latin in school, but I think a big part of it is that people used to learn those things through being taught Latin accidentally. They would be forced to learn these things. But, you know, I, I think, um, well, the way, eventually the way they were taught Latin was just so boring and so pointless that it got, it drove it crazy. But I think there was, there was a good point to start with, with that. Yeah. You just, you have to be familiar with these stories and the, because the stories were designed to teach timeless lessons. Like, like I think, for instance, you look at, you read a modern biography, the biography is like, was this person a secret racist or not? You know, was this person <laughs> this or that? Right. It's like, it's trying to like, um, uh, demystify the person to make them not great. Right. Yeah. And, and there, there are definitely people that we need to understand the truth of who they were. But like when you read something like Plutarch, what Plutarch is trying to communicate was not literal fact but the essence, the virtues that made that person yep. the greatest in the world or not. And like, I think those are the stories that we have to pass on. The, the, to instinct, the instinct to tear down does seem very strange in the modern times. Like I, when we would, you talk about the Greeks and the, and the Romans and wisdom from them, like the Greeks believe that there's like the truth and the beauty and the good, and they're the same thing. And I'd like to, you mentioned like the art in our house influences yeah. our kids and stuff. Cause I, I mean, I, I do think this stuff all kind of ties together in a positive way. And it seems like so much of modern culture to me, it doesn't believe in beauty anymore. It believes in challenging, even though the art is not supposed to be beautiful, it's supposed to challenge and it's supposed to tear down everyone. I feel like this whole like negative malaise that's conquered these areas. Like what's, what's going on with that? Well, and look, I, I think there are, if we live in Texas, there is a, a, a mythology about the Confederacy and the South that's not based in reality. Well, that, that, that's not healthy. Either. Yeah. That, yeah. that, that needs yeah. to be, uh, that needs to be talked about. But the problem is, uh, like I remember I was actually in New Orleans when they took down the statue of Robert E. Lee, which, um, it's nonsensical that there's an 80 foot statue of Robert E. Lee in New Orleans, in, in Lee Circle in New Orleans. Um, a guy who one was a traitor and two, um, never even stepped foot in the city of New Orleans in his life. Right. So I think that comes down. But if you went to New Orleans right now, that column is still there and there's nothing on top of it. You're telling me that one of the, not just the greatest cities in American history, but one of the greatest cities in the world has zero people of virtue or talent or uh, a, a representativeness that we could put up there instead. So I think like, 
I think there there are myths and lies, pernicious myths and lies in American life that people have told themselves because they didn't want to face the past or they wanted things to be true. And I think it's important. The pursuit of wisdom requires staring uncomfortable truths in the face. And I think it's good to have the not tear downness, but the unflinching reality of scholarly analysis. I think that's critical, but it also has to be buttressed with okay, but who is great? Who does represent the good? Who does embody virtue? Who are we celebrating? But, but, but I like what you said about Plutarch. I mean, looking at Thomas Jefferson, obviously he was a flawed individual, but obviously, I mean, even as Obama said back when it was more popular to say it, he was probably one of the most learned men to be in the White House. And yeah. it was just extraordinary intellect, extraordinarily impact on our country. I go back. I don't agree with everything. He sounds like he was a bit of a jerk, but he, he's a genius and he influenced our nation. And the idea that we have to take down statues of him and take down statues, statues of him out of museums and stuff, it just, it seems like it's Maybe good to emphasize the virtues, even if we're going to also acknowledge the flaws. Well, you right? know who did this amazingly well was Martin Luther King. Martin Luther King was incredibly educated, incredibly uh, uh, well-read. And he, what he did was he would study, say, a Thomas Jefferson, and then he would take Thomas Jefferson at his word— Right. And force people who liked Thomas Jefferson to try to live up to those. Oh, I love, I I love that. No, that's what we have to do. Right. We have to understand what was the essence of who these people were and how do we sort of, uh, what were the highest ideals that they they represented that, and I could even take them and improve upon them. Right. Yes, exactly. Cause you're never going to have anything perfect. We're all human. And it's like, I think there's just like this fake idea that like everything could be absolutely perfect and meet the perfect standards. And, and by the way, those people today who are saying that I think they're probably even more flawed in some ways than the people we attacked from 200 years ago. Well, and look, did this person make a positive contribution or not? Right. So Thomas Jefferson makes immense amounts of positive contributions. We wouldn't be here without him. Uh, what he what he lays down in the Declaration of Independence, we've been struggling to live up to since. But he sets a bar that we have spent the last you know a couple centuries striving to live up to and gotten better for that. Did Nathan Bedford Forrest make America better no. in any way? No. no. And and that statue is there. That that mythology is there for a very pernicious reason. That was there for a hateful reason, reason from 100 exactly. years ago. So I, I think a I, distinction. I totally agree with that. So fast forward today with stoicism. Again, we talk a lot about entrepreneurship, about yeah. fixing things that are broken in the world. Like, how is this relevant philosophy for entrepreneurs? And is, is it does it you said you said encourages you to be in the public sphere? Does it encourage you to be an entrepreneur? Or was, what does it encourage you to do if you follow this? It's actually funny. So the founding of Stoicism begins by a, a, an, an entrepreneur. His name is Zeno. He's a, a, a Tyrian uh, dye merchant. So he he's a, a Phoenician. He, they pick up this purple dye, which was a valuable commodity okay. at that time. They would travel across the. the Wasn't it made with some kind of like shells or yeah, something? Yeah, the, the, the they would the slaves would break up this again slavery a constant in history would break up the the shells of these sea uh, sea snails and it would dry out and create this purple purple dye. And so he's a he's a, a it's the equivalent you know, work of the people who make their shorts on YouTube today. Right? <laughs> he's a he's a, he's a <laughs> from a family of merchants traveling in the Mediterranean, suffers a shipwreck, loses everything, washes up in Athens, penniless. And he walks into a bookstore and he hears the bookseller reading uh, the the story of uh, uh, Hercules at the crossroads, the choice between virtue and vice. And and this sets him on this philosophical journey. And and he would joke later that he suffered, he made a great fortune when he suffered a shipwreck because it turned him into something to philosophy into yeah. something else the, the idea of the obstacle is the way you may have of insurance instead but that's a whole yes. other <laughs> but, but what i love about it is first off it's this idea we don't control what happens to us we control how we respond to it right yeah. like he loses everything 
reinvents his life as a result of it. But what I think is fascinating about it, the Stoa Pokile, the painted porch, which he uh, founds and, and where Stoa Stoicism comes from the the Stoa. Yep. Um, he sets up in the middle of the Athenian agora, right? Like it's not Just again, town. it's not yeah. this monastery. You know, it's not this place removed. It's where it's in the marketplace of ideas and people. I, and, I love the marketplace of ideas. It is the yes, marketplace? Yes, li- yeah, literally so. And and so um, is that where it comes from? I didn't thought of it that way. It's to give people in the marketplace who are philosophers. So. That's fascinating. Yeah. And and I, I just I love the idea that. Um, you know, he's not a trained academic, you know, he's not, uh, you know, uh, coming from a place of, you know, uh, fortune or success. He's coming at it from rock bottom. He turns to philosophy and it changes life and he changes the world as a result. But I think there's a reason then that entrepreneurs and business people and, and, and leaders and, you know, people of all types have been turning to that philosophy because that's what we're all doing, which is responding to, you know, the the raw material that that life gives us so so i'm interested you obviously have a lot of empathy for people tearing down statues of bad people that shouldn't be up of critiquing people who need to be critiqued you know in 1980s we had these big rallies at stanford i think was one of the first schools where i think jesse jackson was saying hey hey ho ho western civ has got to go and we we basically stopped teaching all this wisdom stopped teaching a lot of this history that 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 you care a lot about And, and obviously you're probably empathetic to some of their concerns, but like they would go too far. What were they missing? Like how is their philosophy flawed? And well, to get rid of this? I think you can trace a little bit of the mess that we're in now to the tearing down of those ideas and the failure to replace it with something else. Right. So like the lost cause mythology is clearly wrong, clearly unhealthy, but what is then the story of say the America, America coming out of the civil war, right? Is it, are we an irredeemably racist and flawed and evil nation or was it actually, you know, um, a bunch of people who learned a lesson coming out of the civil war, who were struggling against the notions of their time, trying to get um, make America better who, who almost got there and fell short, right? Like how, what do you, what do you take from the story of a country or a nation? Is it, is it one of hope, right? Uh, uh, of incremental progress or is it of, you know, I- irredeemable, irreconcilable flaws? I, so like I, I see flaws in the Stoics that have to be faced and dealt with, but I also see like, if you, throw the baby out with the bathwater. If, if you lose what's good in it, you're lost. There's actually um, a protest at, at Brown University the last couple of years. They wanted to, they wanted to pull down, there's a stat, an equestrian statue of Marcus Aurelius on campus. Really? And they wanted to pull it down because they felt it was a monument to um, colonialization. Marcus Aurelius was a monument to colonialization. Yeah, because the Roman Empire had colonies so it's like wow on, on the it, it's like, i mean there's lots of other things you can criticize romans for too but that, that's uh, interesting no but it, it's it's like and on the one hand like their heart is kind of in the right place right in the sense that like colonialism is exploitative and not great and, and responsible for all sorts of evil but it's like punishing a guy who is dead for two thousand years who had an entirely different conception of uh, how the yeah. world operates. Like it's not even the same. Colo- like it's not even the same no, colonialism. This is uh, what what Rome is doing is not the same as as uh, King what Le- King Leopold is doing, right? And there's also 20 centuries between the two. I might have punished him for those really cool sea battles where they'd flood like a coliseum and they'd make people fight on ships and kill each other for entertainment. Can you imagine? I mean, it was really cool, but it's obviously like you should do that to people. <laughs> but I mean, there's lots of things to punish him for that's that's interesting that that was their framework it's strange right so but what i take from that is people that 
that viewpoint is someone who has not actually read anything yeah. about Roman history or anything from Marcus Aurelius. They, they don't have a nuanced perspective at all on this yeah. stuff. And when you read Marcus Aurelius, you see a guy talking repeatedly about the common good. He talked about the idea of cosmopolitanism. Like actually most of the good stuff that's in today's world has its precedent there. Well, this, this, this seems like even the Jesse Jackson stuff in the eighties seems like it comes in many ways from just not being as educated on the positives here, not really having a nuanced, deep perspective on these things. Yeah. I, yeah. I think, look, the classics have been used to do immense good and also been responsible and rationalizations or justifications for immense evil. The solution to that is not to be ignorant of the classics, mm-hmm. right? It's to, it's to understand the good and the bad the thing, in the classic. The thing that struck me about this this uh, this Britannica series from the fifties that was supposed to like be a summary of knowledge at the time <laughs> was that their view of civilization was that we've had this great conversation going on for two thousand years in the West that's built upon itself. And that's a that's a unique identifier of what Western civilization is, is yep. this great conversation. And I think a lot of academics on, on all political sides used to see it that way. And, and somehow maybe around like 20, 30 years ago that it, it broke and people stopped wanting to have that conversation. Yeah, they shut the conversation down instead of changing the direction of the conversation or pointing out what should be uh, what the conversation is missing. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like, um, like what I think is interesting about says, and I, I joked earlier, there's a bunch of old dead white guys. I was like, first off, a lot of them weren't old, but also the Roman empire included Turkey and Spain and, you know, a r- modern day Iraq and Iran, well, well, Africa. Like it was actually wildly diverse. Well, I think this whole white thing is like super racist, frankly. I mean, I'm Irish on my father's side. I'm Jewish on my mother's side. There's like, there's like, you know, there's like all these nuances. It's just kind of funny to me Like different cultures get all lumped in now. Oh, totally. And and that's, that's my point is that, you know, okay. What, what I love about stoicism is, okay. Uh, Epictetus and, and, uh, and Marcus Aurelius, two white guys, right? Except one of them is the emperor of Rome and the other is a slave. So, it, it, you know, in it's one sense, not diverse, but also as different a perspective as you could possibly have in, in had. Some in ways, time. more, some ways, like more similar, maybe to to like a different race than white. If, if they're being a slave back then, it's just it's not how it was thought of. Yeah, and and so understanding that these people had a vast. Uh, vastly diverse and interesting perspectives from which we can learn so much. Now, uh, what, what tends to be missing is that it's it's a very male perspective, right? That's um, true. That's true of all history right now. But what's interesting about the Stoics is there was this debate. Musonius Rufus, who's Epictetus's philosophy teacher, is like he he, he gives a speech on. He says, "Should women be taught philosophy?" He says, "Is virtue the same in men as in women?" And he makes this argument, you know, in Rome around the first century that. Um, virtue is genderless, that like courage and justice and, and wisdom and self-discipline might, might, uh, demonstrate themselves differently in men or women, but the, 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 it's beautiful in both, right. Or it's, it's necessary in both. And so actually there's an immense amount of progressivism then in the philosophy that, you know, what are you going to celebrate? You're going to celebrate the regressive side, or are you going to look and go, Hey, 2000 years ago, this guy managed to see through all of the, uh, the prejudice and stereotypes and, yep. and anachronisms of his time and, and make a step forward. And then what do you take from that in your own life today? Definitely. And I, and I, and I think that's so important that we do come back to focusing on the positives and the optimistic, because what we were talking about earlier, but basically we, 
whether if we shape everything as broken and corrupt, then we're going to have people be more that way themselves. Whereas if we can show them that there are positives in the world, you reach millions of young people online. You know, I'm obviously very concerned about a lot of things going on with young people today. Birth rates are falling. Test scores are down. All these societal indicators with obesity and depression and, and you know, all sorts of things are, are not working out. I, I feel like we need to give them a positive framework and positive examples here. Yeah. Yeah. That's what, and that's what I'm, that's what I'm trying to do with the writing. And, and I think, look, to me, the big enemy, the big enemy is cynicism and nihilism, right? And when you only criticize, you only tear down and you don't replace, what are you, what are people left with, right? Uh, General Mattis, who, who would actually carry Mark Surrealist with him on all his deployments over 40 years in the, in the Marine Corps. You know, he, he had this great line that I have it encourages his calling. He says, cynicism is cowardice. Yeah. Right. And so you have like, you have to give people hope. You have to give people something to believe in. You have to tell them stories that make them better. Right. Or that, that call for them to be better, to, to, to rise above whatever the limitations are or the, you know, the, the, the flaws of their time. And so that, that what I'm trying to do as I, as I celebrate and also, you know, investigate these people is try to give us something, um, uh, uh, a model to to rule ourselves against, to measure ourselves against, and to to hopefully you know aspire to be like. And, and what gives you hope for the future as you're doing this? Are you seeing signs that that some of this is working? Are you seeing signs we can turn the tide of some of these trends? Yeah, look, the Daily Stoic email goes out to over a half a million people every day. That is the without a doubt, the largest collection of people interested in Stoic philosophy to ever have been assembled at one time in human history, right? That's like, awesome. it's not like there were hundreds of thousands of, uh, of Stoic philosophers, even in the ancient world. The marketplace right? in Athens wasn't that big. Yeah, yeah. E- exactly. And so like to, to see, uh, the people that we reach, you know, people say like social media is the root of all our problems and evils today. But I also see millions of people that are watching YouTube videos about how to get better or listening to podcasts, like thoughtful conversations that are long form between people they want to learn from. And so I, I think you can use these tools for good. I try to use the tools for good. And I, and I think it's, it, again, it's easy to look at everything and be discouraged and upset and disappointed but you can kind of miss the raw numbers of the fact that like there are more people interested in these things than ever before in human history. And those people are more empowered than they ever have been in human history. And, uh, you know, actually there's a great a question from, from, or a great exercise from Epictetus. He says, you know, every situation has two handles, one which will bear weight and one which won't. And I think, you know, do you want to grab the depressing negative, you know, uh, resigned handle, or do you want to grab the one that, you know, here's what we can do. Here's what we are doing. Here's the things to be excited about, hopeful about. You gotta, you gotta go with I t- that. I totally agree. As, as an investor, as an entrepreneur, I could look at almost anything that I'm involved in or others are involved in. And you could tell the, you could tell the negative cynical story yeah. or you could tell like, here's how we're going to make this great. Here's how we're going to fix it. Here's how it's going to be a great thing. Yes. And it's, I think it's really important. Each of us in our lives, like figures out a way to tell the optimistic great story and, and act on it and, and to push it forward. Yeah. Yeah. And, and as the Stokes would say to model that stuff yourself, right? Like don't talk about it, be about it. Like how, how are, this is an interesting thing. Um, Marcus Aurelius never says that he's a Stoic, right? He doesn't write a book, you know, that says like Marcus Aurelius, his thoughts on Stoic philosophy. He never identifies as this in any way. He's seen as a Stoic because 
of how he lived. Like his legacy is the legacy of a Stoic philosopher, right? And so, you know, we can talk to our kids about this stuff. We can write articles about this stuff, but like ultimately... They're going to see who we are. They're going to see who you are. And like the most, you know, important thing you write is the, 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 is the behaviors that you take. All right. Well, that's an inspiring note to end it on. Ryan, thank you so much. Thanks for having me.